Amen, amen. I'm back, Transit Church. Grab your Bibles if you haven't already done that. We're going to be in Psalm 13 today. Psalm 13. Uh, here's a story. Uh, it was uh, early 2000s, and uh, our family was uh, PCSing, permanent change of stations, as military speak, from Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, uh, to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And uh, it was on the heels of uh, 9-11, only a few months beyond that. So uh, as you can imagine, it was a contentious time in our own personal life, but there's tension nationally, not unlike what we're experiencing here today. And uh, uh, to make matters worse, so I had uh, been released early to move from Fort Leavenworth to go to, to Fort Bragg, where I was going to be on the 18th Airborne Corps staff. And uh, I was told that as soon as I got there and processed, that uh, I was going to be deployed. That was the beginning of Operation Iraqi Freedom. And uh, like many at Fort Bragg in this time, we were gearing up towards uh, all that what uh, that uh, conflict would entail. And so we're kind of rushing back at Fort Leavenworth to get our act together, uh, get our things together, and do the you know the the, the hurried army move. Um, what made matters worse is that the the day before we were going to out process, there was a tornado in Kansas. And if you've never lived in the, the Midwest, like it was. It was, it was pretty bad. Uh, uh, we had painted almost every wall in our quarters, our government quarters, and uh, the one prerequisite when you're living in quarters is, all right, take your stuff, clean up a little bit, but if you've painted anything, you gotta like prime all that stuff, and so power went out. I put Larissa and the kids in a hotel, and I came back, and like in the middle of the night, I'm like trying to prime with a, uh, prime over paint with my, with my flashlight. It, it, it was worse than it even sounds. So we made it through, we out-processed, and uh, then we began this long 17-hour trek from Kansas to North Carolina. Um, I don't remember the exact circumstance. I don't remember what the mood was. Uh, Jonathan's only like four, four years old. Our middle son, David's only like two. Zoe isn't even a picture yet. Um, but, you know, this is 17 hours in a minivan. And... Uh, we're driving along probably one, two hours into the journey and Larissa and I look at each other and we see a sign for Walmart. We like got off the highway immediately, went to Walmart and we got one of these 13 inch uh, VCR enclosed kinds of TVs. So some of you are listening, it's like, I, that doesn't even sound right. Like the, the, the technology did exist way back then. So we got one of those and it wasn't that our kids were, were rowdy or anything like that. We just knew we needed some some things to take our attention off the, the road at hand. If you've never, by the way, traveled from Kansas east, it's nothing but road and dirt, okay? So we need a little bit of entertainment to, to entertain our kids. We got that 13-inch TV, put it in the car, put a VC, VC, uh, VCS tape in, which for us would have been Barney or like Blue's Clues. Like, I don't even know if those things exist anymore. Uh, and that's the, that's the tune that got us down the road. And I'm starting with that uh, primarily because as I was beginning to look at Psalm 13 this week, I couldn't help but think about this idea of this is like a road trip song. Think about the way that it starts. David exclaims like, how long, O Lord? And in a sense, the psalmist is crying out like, are we there yet? Like, like, how long do I have to endure life in this minivan? When can I be in my own house doing my own thing, enjoying my personal freedoms? When is this endless drive going to end? Of course, we all have a version of our lives that mimics what we're going to unpack in Psalm 13. 
Before I get to that, let me pray and then we'll get going. Father, I'm grateful for technology. I'm grateful for the gathering of your church. Thank you for for Transit Church and for all those that are able to tune in today. Uh, Lord, we need uh, to hear a word from you. We are, our minds have been so filled with uh, negative things and things that make us think um, uh, just uh, of sadness and and all those things that uh, derail us. And uh, we not only need a word, Lord, we need our hearts uplifted. And so would you do that through your spirit, by your word today? Would you feed our souls and remind us that you really do have the world in your hands? You've got this all under control. We praise you. We bless you. We thank you. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So when it comes to Psalm 13, this psalm speaks to uh, a far more difficult situation than a long road trip with kids in tow listening to Barney or, or Blue's Clues. It talks of sadness, sorrow, and, and even depression. And you know, those can be ugly words. Those aren't words that we like to say out loud. We definitely don't like to uh, allow anyone to know that we're dealing with those things in our personal lives. But we've all faced it, haven't we? We've all um, experienced days that have not gone our way or even seasons of life that have not gone the way that we've wanted them to. And I would say there's some of you in our own congregation that have experienced this worse than others. It, it could be a personal situation that you have no capacity of solving. It could be a relational difficulty, a relational issue. It could be a job issue, health issues, all kinds of trouble. Trouble has no problem of meeting us right where we are. More to the point, it can be a situation where you've lost all confidence that God is even on your side. It's like you're crying out, you're, you're expressing your heart to God and you uh, aren't getting any answer back. And you're saying to yourself, where is God when I need him most? Where is God when my life is enveloped in darkness or uncertainty and I can't even find a light switch to turn on any light inside of my life. And that brings us to the Psalms. If you've read any portion of the Psalms, you know there's a lot of them. There's actually 150 Psalms in our Bibles. There's several types. There's praise songs. Think of Psalm 150. Um, praise the Lord in the sanctuary. Praise him in the heights. Uh, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. You've got uh, Wisdom Psalms, Psalm 1, uh, blessed is the man who uh, doesn't dwell with those, with the ungodly, but his, his uh, mind meditates on the, the, the laws of the Lord. You've got uh, Royal Psalm, Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and why do the kings gather together to, against the Lord and his anointed one? You've got all kind of Thanksgiving Psalms. Uh, uh, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy and love endures forever. And of course, we sing and recite and we love to memorize those, kind, those kinds of songs. But I would uh, point your attention to this. Over one third of the psalms aren't like those kinds of happy, uh, lift my heart up kind of psalms. The, over one, one third of the psalms in our Bible are actually psalms of lament. And that's what Psalm 13 is. Psalm one third, Psalm 13 is a song of lament. And to lament is to express grief or sorrow. We've all come face to face with situations in our lives, in this broken world that we live in that call for lament. We look, uh, we look content on the outside, but deep down, we all have stories that are hovering under the surface of our lives that if other people really knew what was going on 
with us, they would empathize. If other people knew what was going on, just under the surface of what's going on with us, they'd probably run to us and embrace us, and they'd cry along with us. In one sense, the Psalms of the Bible function as a, as a kind of school. The Psalms are, are teachers for our affections and for the heart. Uh, noted uh, Christian therapist Dan Allender and one of my favorite theologians, Trimper Longman, uh, got together and they wrote a book, very popular book, The Cry of the Soul. And in that, they say the Psalms have a soul-exposing function. The Psalms teach us how to process and how often then to express and to pray and even to sing our emotions, the emotions of our soul. And so when we come to, to Psalms, particularly songs of, uh, of lament, they're, they're poetry, but they're also prayers and songs that we can sing. But Allender and, and, and Longman go on to say that when we're expressing particularly Psalms of lament, these aren't cheap things that we say. They can be rather expensive because when we rehearse them to ourselves, even out loud, they require of us to leave a piece of our hearts with God. We're leaving our emotions with him on the table to do what God would do with them. And in that regard, as we look to Psalm 13, this is a Psalm of David. I want you to think of this theme of of praying and of even singing our sorrows to God that he would do what only he can do. So if you've ever read any of the Psalms, particularly the Psalms of David, David is, is no stranger to, to, to sorrow, to, to sadness, and even to depression. Uh, listen to the, the words that he expresses. This is like an anguished cry that he's giving in, the, in, in this Psalm, particularly these first two, two, uh, two verses. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? There are three stanzas in this song. This this first stanza encompasses these first two verses and they are conveying to us the cry of sorrow. We, we don't have any uh, idea of what the specific context that David is in as he's uh, writing this psalm and articulating the, the, you know, the prayers of his heart. Uh, typically in a, a psalm, you can look right below the title and there's a subtitle and it tells us what the psalm is all about. And this, and this one, of course, we only get that it's a psalm of David that he's given to the choir master. So David crafted some words and some lyrics and he gives them to a choir master there in Israel. And the choir master would have set it to music and the, the, the choirs of Israel would have sung them. So we don't have any idea of what's exactly going on in David's life when he wrote Psalm 13. But, but four times in these two verses, kind of in rapid succession, David is asking the question, how long? It's like the road trip. Like, how long? They're like, how long is this pain that I'm experiencing? However trite is going to endure, we can sense the depth of his emotion. One commentator says there's a stair-stepping effect that builds intensity each time he asks the simple question, like, how long, Lord? How, I mean, how long is this going to go on? I can't do anything about it. How long? How long? The words in their repetition emphasize the intensity of David's sadness. But more than that, David feels forgotten by God. It's as if he's saying, like, I've got some issues, Lord, some, some things are going on and I need divine help. Like, I'm, I'm praying and I'm crying out to you and I'm not getting a response back. And it feels like perhaps you're too busy to respond to me. 
I mean, could it be that there's so many other things going on in the world that got your attention is on other things and you don't hear my cry? Have you ever felt forgotten by God? I think in David's case, the situation seems even more intentional than that. David is feeling not only that he's been forgotten by God, but that God has forsaken him. That God has abandoned him, that God has deserted him, that God has turned away from him. Look at the latter half of of verse one. David cries, how long will you hide your face from me? David's saying, Lord, you're hiding from me and I can't find you because it seems like you don't even want to be found. And so at the end of verse two, David feels not only forgotten, not only forsaken by God, but he says that his enemy is exalted over him. And again, we don't know the specific context of uh, the, the circumstance David was in when he was writing this psalm. We don't know what that is, but we do know that if the, the enemy, if, we don't know if some enemy is uh, pursuing his life, perhaps. We don't know if, uh, if he's experiencing some viral disease like the coronavirus that's sweeping through Israel or perhaps the army. We don't know if death is knocking on David's door. Perhaps David is responding to, to his own personal sin and the effect that that's had in his life and how God is responding to that. We actually don't know. But David here is in the deepest of pits. That's what we do know because of his words. But here's what I want you to notice. The fact that we're reading David's words means that he's not bottling up. He's letting it out and he's taking this, his sorrow and his sadness to God. And I think that's what lament is all about. You've heard uh, us talk about Paul Miller and his great book, The Praying Life, quite a bit. And in A Praying Life, Paul Miller calls lament prayers the nuclear option. It's like I don't have anything left. I'm just going to like toss this on out there, see what happens. A nuclear prayer is often messy, loud, unfiltered prayer where we cry out to God when we're out of other options. And we're asking God to fix the seemingly unfixable situation in our life. One other commentator noted, uh, commentator on the Psalms, Derek Kidner, in his commentary says, the very presence of lament in scripture is a witness to God's understanding. He knows how to speak when we are desperate. And usually the words out of our mouths, even if we don't articulate them that this way, is like, how long, O Lord? That's the emotion coming from our souls. You know, there really are two polar extremes when it comes to emotions. When you think about the culture that we live in, our culture celebrates emotion. It's like, let go, do whatever you want, feel whatever you want to feel, be free. But the church world kind of can kind of be opposite. Right. The church world tells you, all right, so emotions like not so much, particularly when it comes to sadness and sorrow. A lot of times in the church world, we feel like even if this not a, isn't expressed overtly, we feel like we're supposed to suppress or even hide our emotions. We're expected to fake it. No one wants to see you filled with sorrow. No one wants to see you sad. We're sublimely taught to be ashamed and get over it. Now, we tell the parents that are uh, viewing right now, a lot of times we do this with our kids, don't we? Our kids are in a, a moment, perhaps a moment of discipline or perhaps just something just sad happens. And in a, in, a, in a reaction to them, probably because of the way that we've lived our lives, we'll tell them, hey, stop crying. Don't cry. Get, o- get over this. What the Psalms of Lament tell us, that that's probably not the right thing to say to your kids in moments. They're supposed to express their emotions. But here's what we do in the church. 
sadness is oftentimes a skeleton in the closet of our faith. We're uncomfortable with sadness and sorrow. We apologize for our tears and what can in this culture be a culture of positivity. But here's what lament is. Lament, like Psalm 13, reminds us of of God's understanding that God knows. That he sees us that he's with us, that he knows our desperation, that God wants us to to bring all of that, all of us and all that we're experiencing to him. One preacher put it like this. He said, lament, like Psalm 13 says, don't enthrone your emotions in in such that there is a way that we can go overboard and, and be too open and free and expressive with our emotions, particularly sometimes at the wrong times. But he goes on to say, don't suppress your emotions either. There is a balance. Your emotions are the the lights on the dashboard. For you military folks out there, it's like the the heads up display. It's those things, those indicators that you need that tells you what's going on. Driving a car, check engine light comes on. You can press on through, but something's likely to happen if you keep doing that. It's it's the, 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 the headlights on your dashboard. They're telling you something important that you should pay attention to. They are the cries of your heart, the language of our souls. And so what do we do? We we express that emotion. We pray that emotion. We sing that emotion. Again, we don't enthrone them. We don't we don't suppress them either. We we say them. We pray them to God. We sing them honestly from our hearts. We pray them before the face of God. Again, Dan Allender and Tremper Longman echo that sentiment. They write in their book, The Cry of the Soul, ignoring our emotions is turning our back on reality. Listening to our emotions, this ushers us into reality. And reality is where we meet God. They go on to say, whenever we turn a deaf ear through emotional denial or disengagement, we're being false to ourselves, forgetting that change comes in honesty before God, like in my in my book, I underline, highlight, like this is a word for me. This is important. Change comes in honesty before God. So it's it, it's not it's important. It's therapeutic for us to be honest, if no, if to no one else to God himself about what we're feeling. And so the cry of lament at one level is this invitation to honestly see and name our sadness. This is God's invitation from him to us. This is God's heart toward you, Transit Church. This is what laments are about. God is saying it's like the relationship that we're in, father to son, father to daughter, father to child. I'm beckoning you to come to me, to bring every part of yourself, which includes your sadness and your sorrow, the things that you're um, concerned about that you don't know what to do about, even the desolate, most desperate places in your hearts and bring them to God himself. You know, we all have our version of Psalm 13 at play in our lives. And so I would ask you, what is yours? What are you right now sad about? What's your story of lament that you would tell those who'd be willing to listen. I was uh, having a, a meeting with a friend this week, a uh, person in our church, and it was right here in our church building. Uh, we were maintaining our social distance. I would have you know that. Uh, but it was just a, a, a friendly meeting to talk, catch up, laugh a little bit. And of course, we talked about everything from what we're looking at on Netflix or Hulu and talked about the government response and talked about just life in general. And this person, um, 
surprised me when they said, you know what, we got to the, the subject of coronavirus, and the person said, you know what, I, I, I wish I could be worried about the coronavirus, but I've got so much other things going on that it's, it's just a, a blip in the, all the other things I got going on. I've got some really serious health issues that uh, need addressing, but I feel like I'm getting the runaround from my doctor. I've got some relational things going on in my own house that I, I can't solve, and I'm just trying to navigate that. I've got some career decisions to make that, uh, unfortunately, all of the, the, the things that are being restricted because of the coronavirus are just in the way of me solving those. And so I, my, my life is so crowded with my own personal issues that I'm not negating how important this coronavirus is and for us navigating through that, but just like it's, like, it's like mess on top of mess. Perhaps that's you too. And here's what God is doing for us in, in, in this, even through this. He's inviting us like right now, today, to bring all that to him, to come to him, to be honest with him, to be honest with ourselves about our desperation and to plead with him to act on our behalf, to plead to him to act on our behalf. And that's what we see David do in this next stanza. Look at verse three. Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest an enemy say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. David has three requests in these uh, two verses here. He, he's praying. He's pleading with God. He's firstly saying, I want you to consider me. Secondly, he's saying, I, I want you to answer me. And, and thirdly, and this is interesting. He says, I want you to light up my eyes. And then uh, kind of in the latter half of verse three and then all of verse four, he gives God the reasons why God should respond. And so he firstly says, I'll die if you don't respond. Secondly, my enemies are going to win. And thirdly, my enemies will rejoice over you. And so it's like David is saying, all right, Lord, uh, we're in a relationship together. And from what I understand, uh, my enemies are your enemies. Your enemies are my enemies. My enemies seem to be getting the best of me. And again, we don't know if David's enemy is a is a disease or a situation or an actual physical foe that he, that's going against him and seemingly having their way. But David is saying, all right, Lord, come help, because if this doesn't go well, it's going to look bad on you as it's going to look bad on me, too. And I got to tell you, the first thing that I that I react to when I read these words is just the simplicity of David's prayer. This is a simple prayer that David's praying from his heart, articulating what's going on. All right, Lord, I'm, I'm in trouble. I need some some help. Uh, many of you have read or heard of Charles Hatton Spurgeon, he is uh, notably called the Prince of Preachers. He was a British uh, preacher and theologian, um, and he was called the Prince of Preachers because the eloquence of his words. And so notably, he says about like prayers like this, he says, short prayers are long enough. Did you hear that? Short prayers are long enough. It's like, Lord, I, I don't I don't have much. Like, here's a couple words. In fact, can I give you one word and spell it out? H-E-L-P, like you see, like, like on a sand somewhere and somebody's lonely by themselves, nowhere to go, nowhere to rescue themselves. Like, can you fill in the gaps, Lord, and, and sort of get me out of this mess that I'm in? Our short prayers are long enough. And so my encouragement to you, Transit Church, don't be afraid to, to say whatever you say. Save whatever you can say. And it, it's okay if it's short. 
I think we're supposed to notice that this is a, a watershed moment for David. He, he's in despair. He, he's lost all hope. And while David's reference to, to, to death in verse 3 is likely not the threat of physical death, he's likely expressing his own depression or perhaps some form of, of spiritual anguish, which means he is in pain from the inside out. And I mean, despair is a type of pain. You know, we can see pain on somebody's face if like, there's like three people, five people right here in worshiping with us. Uh, and if one of them should come up, take a hammer and like, bam, like bam me on, like, bang me on the toe, I would feel that and you would see a grimace on my face. You probably see a, a, a different reaction as well as I retaliate. Probably not on Facebook Live, but when we finish, I would. But you can see pain on someone's face, and I don't think despair is any different. We can see despair on someone's face. There, the, a, a person's voice may sound okay, but, but when you look in your eyes, it can be the telltale of really what's going on on the inside. And we can often see through the eyes, through the facial expressions, pain, stress, and anguish, and, and even dejection because our eyes betray us. Um, one of my favorite grandmothers was uh, Grandma Tucker. She was my paternal grand, great-grandmother, my father's grandmother. And I spent a lot of time with her in my elementary uh, years. Uh, I, she lived close to my elementary school, so my parents would drop me off to school. I'd do school, come home. Me and my brother and several of my cousins who also lived near would stay at my Grandma Tucker's house in the afternoons. And my grandma had like, she had more than like a sixth sense. She had more than just an eye in the back of her head. She had a discernment. I don't know if it was godly, but she had discernment. And she was one of those people that could just like sniff out um, sickness or trouble uh, even before it manifested itself. And so a lot of times when us kids were like even the, the hint of a sign of some kind of a sickness or cold or flu, she's getting the Vicks. I mean, she look in her eyes and then she'd get vet Vicks, the nasal, the nasal stuff and the, the Vicks rub. And she'd like oh, open your shirt, putting all this stuff on us. I don't know what camphor oil is, but I do know that was a term that she used and she would do, make all kinds of concoctions with camphor oil. It was nasty, but that's what my grandma used because of this, this, this discernment, this sixth sense that she had sniffing out issues in us before uh, they ever happened. But I would uh, be remiss if I didn't say the real sense that my grandma had in regards to us when we, when we got into mischief. So my cousin Randall and I were one time uh, outside um, just into things and uh, not knowing that my grandma somehow knew what was going on. We come inside and I don't know how she knew what she knew, but without saying a word, she gets this, she gets this hot wheel, one of those yellow hot wheel, like plastic rubber kind of uh, tracks. And she just like lays into us. Like that was in the day of corporal punishment. So uh, parents don't do that nowadays, but she saw what was uh, not readily able to see in us just by looking at us with a little bit of discernment. We don't have the privilege of seeing David's face, but God does, and we can discern what's going on through his words. And David's emotional anguish was visibly noticeable. 
So David is appealing to, to God's character. That's what he's doing here. He's, he's making a plea to God, the God who is faithful. He says, oh, Lord, my God. David is thinking back to who he knows God to be, to, to this God who's rescued Israel through the Red Sea. He's brought them through 40 years of, of uh, desert wilderness and brought them into a promised land and gave them uh, a land flowing with milk and honey. David's saying, oh, Lord, my God. When he says, my God, He's personalizing it. Lord, you're not just the God of Israel. You're my God. I can, I can call you and think and know that you're going to respond to my needs because you're my God, he says. And then he says, God, consider me. W- would you think of me? Would you, would you let me know that you're there because you see me and you know what's going on with me? God, would you answer me? Yeah, I got a lot of voices in my head right now and they're confusing me. So would you would you calm out those voices and would you unbewilder all the parts of my life that, that feel bewildered right now? So, God, would you think of me? Would you would you answer me? I just need a simple word of hope from you. And lastly, David prays, God, would you restore a spiritual sparkle in my eyes, light up my eyes. It seems that, I mean, that's an interesting way for David to pray to God in this moment. But what he's saying there is, would, God, would you make my eyes gleam with the grace of your mercy once again? David is thinking back to, to number six. A lot of times we use this as a, as a benediction. Number six, uh, we said it last week as a benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. The Lord be great, gracious unto you and give you peace. He says, Lord, if you could, if you did it to them long ago, would you do it for me even now? And so he's praying, Lord, restore back to me light and life and your favor and your joy. So that's David's plea. And that, of course, Stranger Church can be our plea as well. Here's the last thing that we see in our text. Verse five and six It's a declaration of hope. Verse five. But I've trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. Because he's dealt bountifully with me. You know what? I think the, the most important word in this psalm, the most important word in, in any lament is this three little word, but, B-U-T. David is, is praying, how long, O Lord? How long will I be in this predicament? How long will it feel like the world is crashing in on me and I'm not able to be to dig myself out? How long, oh Lord, will it be till I can't discern your voice? How long will you leave me in this condition that feels like I can't even, I don't even know if you know that I'm here right now. How long, oh Lord? He pours out his heart for this, for his own particular situation. He, re, he reveals his raw emotions to the only one that can change his circumstance or at least change his perspective. And God does what we are incapable of doing. He gives us the word, but. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. For those of you that read a little bit of Bible, particularly the Old Testament, you know, steadfast love is, is the Hebrew read word hesed. It's, it's uh, characteristically uh, defined as God's unfailing love. It's the loyalty that God uh, bestows. He gives to those who trust in him. 
It's the love that God extends to those who are in covenant with him. It describes the love God sets on you. It's a love that never stops loving you. I love how the Jesus Storybook Bible puts, and I, I mean, every time I get to uh, Hesed, I always got to quote Sally Lloyd-Jones in uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible because she gets it right. It's the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking always and forever love. That's how God loves you. Amen to that. Here's what's amazing about this, though. And this is this is really amazing. And it's it's true for us. As far as we know, David's situation has not changed. He's still in the pit. As far as we know, David still has more questions than he has answers, more problems than he has solutions. But. Here, David's able to say, you know what, there's a mess of stuff going on around me. There's a mess of stuff that I don't know. There's a situation and a circumstance that I can't even do anything about. This is just all a mess. I'm a mess. But I'm going back to what I do know. So let's ask ourselves, what does David know? David knows the promises of God, Transit Church. He knows the promises of God. He points to to God's steadfast love. He reminds his own heart of God's salvation. That's what he's clinging to. There's a God that knows everything that there is to know about my personal situation, circumstance. There's a God that knows everything that he could possibly know about me, all the good, the bad, the ugly, the indifferent about me. And yet he still chooses to notice me. There's a world that's going on and it's suffering just as much as I am right now. And despite how I might feel in a moment that God is not with me, that he's not with me, he's not listening. He's not attentive to my cry. He really is. God, David is focusing on what he does know, even though his heart may tell him otherwise. He's like, Lord, you've written down, you've put in your word. I'm going to believe that Uh, many years later. David would write Psalm 37. I heard this psalm growing up so many times as I, I mean, I heard it all the time as I grew up in the Black Baptist Church. I, I was young, but now I'm old. But yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor see begging bread. That's, that's true for David's situation right here. And what he's saying is, you know what? I've been with you for a long time, Lord. I've been through the thick and the thin. I've been through ups and downs. I've been with you when it was right. And now it feels like it's oh so wrong. But here's what I know. I was young then. I'm kind of old now. But you've never forsaken me. And I've never gone without your care. And that's the same thing for us. He's still with us. He's committed to us. Trinity Church, he's not leaving us. Those words aren't trite. God will never leave you nor forsake you. And isn't that what we need right now? Isn't that what we need to hear? Isn't that what we need to discern from God through his word? It's like the child that wakes up in the middle of the night. I was a child that woke up in a, lot, a lot in the middle of the night. And I, I, I'm not going to say it. All right. I went to bed a couple of times because I thought there were alligators on my floor. I call out, Mom, come get me. I got to use the bathroom. And uh, sometimes mom didn't get there quick enough. And because the alligators were a threat to me, I, I had to go when I had to go. But a child that's in distress in the middle of the night, what do they want? They want the comfort of their mom or dad or their caretaker. Do they want you to just turn the lights on? 
Do they want you to, to, to just like comfort them and then leave? Probably not. What do they want? They want the embrace of those that they trust and that care for them the most. And that's what we all need right now. You know, we're all grieving things that we've lost in the midst of this coronavirus. Um, and I think the, 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 the biggest thing that all of us are grieving is just the freedom of maneuver. I mean, aren't we? I mean, we just, we're Americans. We're, we're just used to doing what we want to do when we want to do it. And we have sort of lost most of that kind of freedom. I think especially about those in our church community who perhaps uh, not just have been furloughed or uh, told to work from home, but those potentially who will lose their jobs and their financial uh, uh, livelihood is at stake. And so if, you're, if that's you, then you need to let us know and let us come around you and, and support you as we are able. But think about the, the students in our congregation, the students around the world. All, I'm, I don't know a school that's still in operation, at least for the next several weeks. And for our kids, the grief for them is uh, the regular interaction they had with academics and teachers and their friends. It's the, it's the things that come with school. It's the, the laughter and the fun at lunchtime. It's the extracurricular activities. It's the sports seasons. And we're all grieving not being able to participate in those kinds of things. It's like stuff that you do outside of church and home. It's, it's dance class. It's, uh, it's the cheerleading camp. I mean, it's, it's music lessons. For those sports fanatics out there, aren't we like in the biggest slump? Like everything from basketball to hockey to Major League Baseball to perhaps even the Olympics being affected by uh, the restrictions from the coronavirus. Here's the thing that we need to know about, about lament. And that's why we've gone to Psalm 13 today. Lament doesn't always lead to an immediate solution. And so I don't come here standing in front of you saying, all right, Let's let's blink our hand, blink our eyes twice and all this is going to go away. I don't think uh, that's going to be our particular solution in that. Lament doesn't always bring a quick or timely answer. Uh, I would say this at a funeral. Grief is not tame. You know, grief is not tame. You don't prescribe when it happens and you can't necessarily uh, tell your soul when it's going to be concluded with the griefs that it's uh, that it's enduring. Lament is not a simplistic formula either, but here's what lament is. It's the song that we sing, believing that one day God will answer and restore, and he will. Lament invites us to pray through our struggle with lives that are far from perfect. And so with that said, let me give you three uh, notes of pastoral advice, and then we'll be done. We'll sing a song, and, and we'll pray ourselves into our lives, restricted into our homes Firstly, here's, here's something for all of us. Let yourself lament. Let yourself lament. Over a third of the Psalms in our Bible are lament because they need to be, because we, we suffer more than we are willing to admit. Paul Miller in his book, I mentioned this earlier, uh, this, this really is the nuclear option. And so if there's ever a time to pray messy, loud, unfiltered prayers, where we cry out to God because we have no other option, now is the time to do that. 
And here's what we're praying for. Here's what we're praying out loud about. We're asking God to, to actually fix the seemingly unfixable situation that we find ourselves in, that our local community, that our government, that the world finds itself in. Think about if Christians would pray instead of complain. Let's pray. Moms and dads, let your kids lament. Your kids are grieving the loss of their daily interaction with their friends and all the things that they would enjoy in their own personal freedoms. And so teach them how to cry out to God about the things that are important to them. Here's the second thing. Care for yourself. Uh, a mentor and friend of mine sent a bunch of us pastors a note encouraging us. And uh, here's what he says uh, in regards to just caring for ourselves. He said some of us need probably uh, have reached our limits a fair bit this week. Haven't we all? Many of us probably find ourselves sluggish or forgetful or struggling to stay focused on much of anything. Part of that is because you might be working from home instead of at work. Probably some of you are eating more than you normally would because you're at home. So some of those things play into that. But part of it is because we're like bombarded with information. Our smartphones and the technology of our day give us instant information about everything at any moment. And here's the thing, Transit Church, I don't think we were supposed to ingest that amount of information that often for that long. And I think it's affecting us. It's stressing us out and stress increases our minds and starts our minds to race with each bit of data that we're taking in about the coronavirus on top of all the other things going on in your life. Like my friend I told you about earlier. And it doesn't help that we have this ever increasing restrictive guidance about social distancing and all the implications of that for our work, our families, our friends, and, and even our church here today. And so I learned this week there is a, such a thing as decision fatigue. All of our church, I mean, many of you work for the government, and if you're not making decisions that affect many people, you're executing decisions, and um, the, 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 the bigger the decision that you're being required to make, it means it's perhaps stressing you more, but more than that, it's taking more out of you. And the, the more experience of decision fatigue that you experience as a person, the more you're going to find your, your willpower depleted. To put it another way, you're susceptible to temptation the more you, the more or the bigger decisions you have to make. And so it's right for you to feel exhausted, but it's also right for you to remember you aren't God. Only God is God. You can't process all that information and make all those decisions and not feel your limits. And so what's the remedy? I think it's like, take a break, chill out, take a nap. If you're at home with your family and you have the ability to um, to be around your family more then just have some fun with your family. We aren't quarantined from taking walks yet. So take a walk. As one friend reminded me this week, don't try to be God. Because being people conformed to God's image is hard enough. And I would tell you, the more stress on our lives from all of this, the more you, we are all susceptible to temptation. Again, some of you will eat more. Some of you will turn to, like we all have these things in our lives, many addictions, some perhaps severe addictions that we turn to when life stresses us. And we feel pressured from all sides. And this, this is one of those times that many of us will turn to those things. And so obviously watch yourself for those things. Some of us will turn more to alcohol. 
Some of us will turn to food. Some of us will turn to binge, binging uh, Netflix and Prime and I mean Hulu and all those things. Some of us will turn to um, pornography. And so let's check in on each other and um, watch ourselves. Lastly, and I'll, cl- I'll conclude with this. Some of us need others to care for us. Some of us need others to care for ourselves. And that's a difficult thing in the in the restrictions of social distancing. But I would tell you that's that's why we are as best as technology will allow us to. We're taking all of our meetings online. We still need each other, Transit Church. And there's anything that uh, all this social distancing should emphasize to us is that we weren't meant to do life alone. Thank God for technology. Thank God for people who know how to use it. And so I would encourage you, if you have not yet, join us. Anytime you see us popping up on a Facebook Live or a Zoom meeting for community group or meetings or Bible studies, men's and women's, I mean, come on, join us. Stay in touch. Stay in touch because you need it. Stay in touch because we need it. We need to see your face and hear your voice. And for those of you that feel isolated and alone because you are that, then particularly for you, reach out to us. Let's do this together. Let's get through this together. Let's pray for each other. In that regard, let's pray now. Father, we're grateful. I'm thankful for, again, for this this medium that we get to meet with each other, although we're dispersed as a church. And God, thank you for the medium of prayer. Prayer reminds us that we need you. And that's confession of our hearts, Lord. We need you. Lord, there's ordinary pressures on our lives that we're still having to deal with on top of all the global pressure uh, because of the coronavirus, Lord. And if there's not, I mean, if there's ever a time where the confession of our hearts is that we need you, it's right now. So Lord, would you respond to us? Would you respond in ways that only you can? Respond to us through your word, God. As we open your word, God, would you sing to us songs of deliverance, from the Psalms, but from every portion of Scripture, God. So I commend the, the, the Bible, the words of Scripture, the words of life to, to our church family, Lord God. And I pray that as people turn to your word in faith, God, that you respond and God, that you lift us up, that you lift us, that you lead us to a rock that's higher. God, we pray for um, our own souls souls that are in despair, souls that feel satin and sorrow. We pray for those who can't encourage themselves. Lord, they, they, need, they need you. They need to hear from you. They need, to do what, they need you to do what they can't do for themselves, Lord God. Speak encouragement to their souls. Lord, thank you for technology and for people that have discernment that can come into our lives. And um, just because you give them a word, Lord God, they can come and and text us or encourage us. So I pray that that would happen throughout our church family. And lead us to a rock, Lord God, lead us to a rock that's higher when our heart seems distant and cold. Lord God, you promised that you lead us. Lead us to a rock that's higher. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen and amen. All right, Transit Church, wherever you are, sitting in your living room or perhaps just looking uh, 
on, a, on an iPhone, we want you to respond with us. And as we do when we're gathered here physically in the building, we want you to respond in the same ways there. Firstly, uh, we're going to sing one last song. So sing uh, out loud, perhaps with your family or even by yourself to uh, remind yourself, as the psalmists do, that when life is pressing us in, uh, one of the ways that we can lift our own spirits is we sing to the God that, um, that deserves our praise. He is worthy. And because he's worthy, um, he'll never let us be forsaken. You can uh, respond by giving. Uh, if you are a regular member of Transit Church, then we encourage you go on our internal page and give as you have always given. You can also give on our website, transitchurch.com. Perhaps you're listening and you're not a, a regular attender or member of Transit Church and you've heard things that you've never heard before. And we would uh, tell you the Bible prescribes to us that as we hear God's word, that it uh, requires a response. And oftentimes that response, always that response is repentance and faith. We, re we repent. It means to turn. We turn from our ways of thinking, our ways of doing. We turn from our sin, our waywardness. And the invitation from God, the God is that we return to him. And so I would encourage some of you. In what ways has life pressured you that you need to turn from your way of thinking and your way of doing and turn to God. Jesus promises us that when we turn to him, away from our sin and to him, that he would heal us and he would save us. So I commend to you, Jesus. Amen.